Thank you for your good singing this morning. Great song to throw us into our passage. I invite you to join me in Habakkuk chapter 3. Do a little review before we actually get to the, to the scripture reading, but you can join me there in Habakkuk chapter 3. Our series is Faith Through Fog. Our prophet Habakkuk never loses faith in God throughout this book, even though he doesn't really see what God is doing at the time. As a prophet of Israel, he looked out on the people to whom he was ministering, and, uh, and, and he ministered and saw their rebellion, and, and he was getting frustrated with it. So in chapter 1, he cried out to the one for whom he had been ministering, God, what's going on? I've been ministering to your people for you. And they're responding with rebellion. They're responding by not listening. Okay, you didn't use those words exactly, but the sentiment is there if you read chapter 1. The very word of God that Habakkuk had been ministering to God's people for God was constantly being rejected. So even though Habakkuk's theology was sound, that God's word is powerful, it seemed as though God's work was ineffective. In fact, he said as much. Can you relate? Do you know the truth of God? Do you know the power of God? And yet it seems that God's word is paralyzed either in, in your own life or in, in someone else's life that you just don't see the results. I know that some of you can. You have relatives or friends that you have been witnessing to, sharing the gospel with, and they just won't respond. You keep praying and you keep sharing and you may well feel at times that the word of God is powerless. Don't fall for it. Maybe you have children whom you have taught and modeled the word of God all throughout their life. And because they're not living it out, you feel that perhaps the word of God is weak. This is a lie of the devil designed to discourage you and to get you to give up, don't give up. Every pastor who has been faithful to proclaim God's word has a bit of an understanding of what Habakkuk is going through. To know the power of God contained in the word of God and to see little growth. As I look over the years that I have had the privilege to minister to God's people for God, uh, I am thankful that he has never completely hidden the impact of the word from me. I've always seen some growth somewhere. And then as time goes on, looking back, I actually see more growth that I didn't know was going on. God had hidden some of it. But he's never completely hidden it from me, and I'm grateful for that. I'm reminded of a, a couple missionaries. I may have shared this with you before. I don't care. I'm going to say it again. We had two missionaries at our church for a conference, and uh, they had both been serving in their respective fields for about the same amount of time, around 10 years, 
and, and one of them was in the Philippines, and within about eight years, he had started Bible studies, which started a church. That church had grown into well over a thousand people. Uh, that church had planted more churches in the Philippines. That church had started uh, a mission agency that was sending missionaries to other nations in Asia that, that we as Americans couldn't send missionaries directly to. Amazing work of God in the Philippines. At that same conference, another man had been working in Portugal for about the same time period. He too had started Bible studies. He too had been faithful day in and day out. And in that same time period, he had led one soul to Christ. The host pastor of that missions conference brought them both up to the stage, held their hands, and proclaimed rightly so to us that these men had been equally faithful. The guy from the Philippines actually added to that a little bit, saying, this man who has served for eight years and seen so little fruit, he's actually more faithful because he hasn't given up. I would have given up. This is the situation that Habakkuk is in. He's ministering faithfully. And what does he see among his people, among God's people, the nation of Judah? What does he see? He sees injustice. He sees rampant sin among God's people. And he's frustrated. He hasn't given up. He doesn't give up. He keeps faith. You who have unsaved family or friends that just won't respond to the gospel, don't give up. You, be faithful and trust God. What we're going to see in our passage today is that God wants us to be faithful to him and in response, he will reveal his greatness to us. You, be faithful to him. He will reveal his his greatness to you. Habakkuk has been faithful. In chapter 1, he expressed his frustration with the lack of godliness among God's people, and God has responded to him with this plan to purify the nation of Judah. He says, I'm raising up this evil people, the Chaldeans. We know them as the Babylonians. They're going to come in, and they're going to take Israel out of the land. They're going to take the, God's people out of God's land. He doesn't actually tell them why specifically there is a specific reason we'll get to that sometime later but he's going to do it he's going to take them out of the land of israel and this is a terrifying plan uh, that's not what habakkuk wanted habakkuk just wanted god to soften their hearts and 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 well up some righteousness within him he goes no i'm going to take this unrighteous evil people i'm going to pull them into the land you're going to be punished as such for, for your actions, or the, the nation's going to be punished. And, and what's Habakkuk's response to this? It's fascinating. We're in chapter 3. This is his response. His response is a prayer of surrender and submission. Follow along with me. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. 
His splendor covered the heavens, and his earth was and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Let's pray. Father, we pause here because yours are the everlasting ways. So often, Lord, we try to live life on our terms with our goals in mind, with our logic. Yet your ways are higher and greater and better. Help us to see you better today. Help us to see you more clearly. Help us to see you as greater so that we too, like Habakkuk, will surrender ourselves, our plans, and our ways to you. Father, guide my thoughts and words in Jesus' name. Amen. We started chapter 3 last week. I told you chapter 3 is all a song. Verse 1 was the title verse. The last verse of the chapter gives up the the wrap-up of the song. I think it just says uh, to be played on stringed instruments, something like that. Letting us know that this is a song or a psalm that we are looking at. Verse 2, which is what we spent most of our time on last week, was uh, Habakkuk's prayer. And, and the response of this prayer is what we see in verses 3 through 15, which is a theophany. I'm glad I don't use big words all the time. Uh, a theophany is a visual depiction of God. Being able to uh, describe him in ways that will help us to understand God better. Uh, of course, this, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. In Hebrew grammar, the verb tenses don't always line up so, so nicely with our English verb tenses. Uh, in the Hebrew, uh, the, the verbs that we're going to look at, the, the actions, if you will, that we're going to see God do in our passage uh, come to us as a past tense in English. In the Hebrew, it was in a perfect tense. And, and one commentator uh, made mention that, you know, it, it's it shouldn't really be in the past tense in the English language, uh, but it's not wrong that we read it in the past tense because the way the Hebrew people would have understood it was in what he calls a prophetic perfect tense. Not pathetic, prophetic, as in prophecy. And, and what he means by that is even though Habakkuk is prophesying at something that is at his time a future event, He's using past tense words for us so that we might see it as already done. Habakkuk was so confident in this truth that it was just as good as done. So it's actually helpful for us in our English understanding to use the past tense. And so you'll see that as we, as we go through the passage. Uh, verse 3 uh, just starts out with God coming from a couple different places, from Teman and, and Mount Paran. The locations mentioned here are reminiscent of the path of the Exodus. Remember the Exodus? The nation of Israel is enslaved in Egypt for four centuries. God raises up Moses to lead them out from Egypt. 
uh, into the promised land is the idea, but because of sin, they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It's that, that avenue of going from the wilderness into the land of Egypt, that, or into the land of Israel. That's what's uh, described here by these two locations. Teman was a city of commerce at the crossroads of major routes that made it a very, uh, a very strong city, a very wealthy city. Um, but most likely, the writer here is using the town of Teman to refer to the whole area around it, much like we might do today. If I needed to go to Papillion for something, I might tell you, hey, I'm going to Papillion, I'll be back later. But if I'm telling my parents who are not familiar with the Omaha area, I'm just going to say I'm going to Omaha. Now, is that as precise? No, but it doesn't give them the idea of where I'm going. Yeah, and that's what's happening here with these locations. It's not necessarily a, the, the precise town that we're talking about. We're talking about the area. This uh, reference to Teman is uh, a district of Eden, Edom that is southeast of Judah. So uh, we have the nation of Israel, the, the kingdom of Israel is, is the north. We have the, the southern kingdom, which is the nation of Judah, and then to the southeast, which is my left, your right, is going to be over here. So talking about that area, and we get that because the other location he mentioned is Mount Paran, and that's the southwest. Well, where was the wilderness wanderings? It was southeast, southwest. It was to the south of uh, what we know of as the nation of Judah today. Uh, Mount Paran is uh, in the area of Mount Sinai. Together, these locations remind the reader of the giving of the law. Remember, this was written to, uh, to the, the Hebrew people that by just saying a general location, they're going to be reminded of where Moses received the law straight from God. Uh, these locations are going to remind them of the wilderness how God led them and provided for them in the wilderness. So in saying that God has come from Teman and Mount Paran, he's reminding them uh, not only of God's rescue of the Israelite people from Egypt, he's pointing to God's future rescue when he's going to have the Babylonian Empire some later date destroyed and the Israelites will be free to go back to their land. So even though he does not lay out the exact details of the Exodus like other passages do. There are plenty of psalms and songs. There are plenty of other narratives in Scripture that uh, refer in detail to the Exodus. Uh, he just lays out a couple landmarks to kind of point their mind in that direction about how God rescued them once from this area. He's going to rescue them again. He directs the worshipers to remember that God is the God who rescues. Do you believe that he is your rescuer? So we see God's power to rescue. Secondly, we see God's power proclaimed as verse 3 continues. By the word, that word sila or sela. I don't generally read it while I'm reading scripture. That was a musical notation to uh, cause us to have an interlude or to have a pause. There's some change in the music. Uh, and so that word is there to get us to ponder what was just said in the first half of verse 3. We've done that. So we're going to take the second half of verse 3. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. 
His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. All is not lost for God's people, the people of Judah. It doesn't look good at this moment because Judah is mired in sin. The prophecy of what God's going to do to fix this problem does not look good because God's going to take them and put them out of the land. They're going to go into captivity. It's not going to be a fun time. But all is not lost. God, their God, will be glorified in all the earth. All Habakkuk could see in chapter 1 was the darkness of sin in that age. But God will be glorified. Just as the light of the sun penetrates darkness and gives us day, so too will God be glorified. Even if it doesn't look like it in the here and now. Even though it seems that The world is descending further into darkness, and we could actually make that case today, couldn't we? The Lord will be glorified, and it's as good as done. The imagery in verse 4, which is actually a little more apparent in the Hebrew language than it comes across in English, is that the light is there and increasing, much like Uh, the the light of the dawn grows from a subtle glow in the distance to to casting long shadows to then being uh, bright and blinding, so too the glory of God is and is increasing on the earth. This light is blinding. This light casts out all shadows. This light is unavoidable. Habakkuk is in the dark now, but the light will come. When? When's it going to come? Let's go to Habakkuk's point of view. We know historically it's another decade or so after this prophecy that the invasion actually happens. We know from Scripture that when they're taken into captivity, they are held captive for 70 years. And then God rescues them. So how much of this did Habakkuk see? He didn't see the rescue. Not in his day. Yet he still spoke of it with such certainty that he'd declare it complete. That's his confidence, that's his faith. Faith through fog. This unable to see really what God is doing, yet he continued to have faith. Light is powerful. We understand it in agriculture, that if the land is dry, we can come up with ways to irrigate. Maybe hard, maybe costly, but we can do it. If the land is lacking certain nutrients, we can amend the soil with fertilizer and such and cause it to have the nutrition it needs. But if there is no sunlight, there will be no growth. The seeds, if we can keep the soil warm enough without sunlight, the seeds will germinate, but they will not grow. In fact, 
If there is no sun, should the sun burn out, we will freeze and starve in short order. By the way, there's no chance of that happening. Because God's told us what's coming next, and that's not it. God is light. Just as there is no substitute for the sun, there is no substitute for the light of God. Second part of verse 4. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Veiled, to cover, to hide. Again, reminiscent of the Exodus. When God came to dwell with his people, he told Moses, build me this tabernacle, and he gave him all sorts of specs on the how to build this. And once it was built, what happened? The, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that, that had led them to that spot, God actually descended onto the tabernacle. The very presence of God was shown by glorious light, veiled by cloud, so that you know everyone didn't die upon looking at it. At night, it was visible through lightnings and fire through the clouds, and the day visible through the pillar of cloud. God came to dwell among his people, yet his full glory had to be hidden, lest people die at the sight. As powerful as was the Exodus, as God himself is so powerful, so too would be the rescue from Babylon in that distant future. God would use different means. He would use different visuals at this second rescue. But the power of God is by no means diminished. We see God's power to rescue. We see his power proclaimed. Verse 5, we see his power to destroy. Read along with me. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Pestilence goes before him. Plague follows him. Plague and pestilence are words that literally refer to deadly disease, but are often used as terms of war, as war's destructive nature. God will utterly destroy Babylon for what they are going to do to Judah. I'm sure all God's people said amen to that. But remember, God's the one raising up Babylon to do this to Judah. He raised them up for this purpose, to be used for God's function, but then to be destroyed. There's something about God's destructive purpose that we can explore here. We know God as the God of love. Goodness, most people who have no actual faith in God, who generally only use God as a swear word, they believe God is love. We know God is the God of love. We know him as the creator, all-powerful, holding all things together. We know him as holy and just and righteous. Because he is holy, we also understand that we must be perfectly holy to be in his presence, and we can't do that on our own. If we're going to be with him in eternity, we must also be holy. So in his infinite wisdom, in his love, and in his righteousness, God sent Jesus, God the Son, to be sin on our behalf, to be punished on our behalf. 
that we receive by faith. We receive the salvation by faith so that faith comes from what is heard and what is heard comes from the word of God. That's from Romans chapter 10. And all these truths about God, about his love for us, his wisdom, his giving of himself for us, all those truths endear us to him, don't they? I mean, he sacrificed so much for me. I don't deserve that. Yet God, the God of our salvation, is not just the God of love. He's also the God of destruction. Revelation chapter 20, I found it a bit ironic that Pastor Dan read to us from Revelation this morning because we don't exactly read from Revelation every Sunday. Now we're doing it twice in one. Revelation chapter 20 verse 15 says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is not a temporary casting. This is what we know of as hell and it is eternal. God is the God of destruction. Those who rejected God's offer of salvation in their lifetime will not be saved. An accurate and complete view of God must include his righteous judgment. Yes, he is the God of love who's offered salvation and anyone who believes in him will be saved. But all who reject him are condemned. It is this righteous judgment, it is this God of disaster that we see in verse 5. God, who is raising up the Babylonians against Judah, is going to take the mighty Babylonians back down to nothing. Pestilence and plague. In verse 6, we see God's power over the strong. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Well, the word measured in verse 6 really should be more something along the lines of moved or disrupted or shook. So the measuring or surveying of the earth envisioned by Habakkuk is not a passive observation. It is an observation to be sure. It's not a passive observation as, as we might simply watch a ball game. God instead is active in shaping and forming the events. Here's how another translator puts verse 6. When he stops... The earth shakes. When he looks, the nations tremble. He shatters the ancient mountains and levels the eternal hills. He is the eternal one. I really do like that translation. It gives us the imagery of the power of God causing things to happen that you and I could never do. Can we stop nations? I mean, if we could... Would we have all this drama going on in Russia and Ukraine? Do you see the power and the authority of God pictured here? There's one nation over there. 
We know him as Russia. They're trying to do something that lots of other nations, lots of powerful nations don't want him to do. And he's still doing it. Why? Because it's really, really hard to force a nation to do something that they don't want to do. And so the other nations are rightly counting the cost. Are we willing to go to World War III? History is littered of accounts of what it takes to force a nation to do something, what it, to do something it doesn't want to do. And yet God makes every nation do exactly what he wants them to do. I love that. That's my God. When God stands in front of a nation, they tremble. Talks about the nations. He talks about the everlasting hills. Do you know how hard it is to change the landscape? We live in a hilly part of the world. We tried to make everything nice and flat, like it is, you know, in the Council Bluffs area. How much work would that take? There's a reason we don't do it. It takes an enormous amount of effort, yet God uses absolutely zero effort to raise up mountains or to remove them. Because he's all-powerful. This is the same God that we defy every time we sin. When we speak a word that is false and we know it, we're defying the God that makes nations tremble. We're defying the God who moves nations exactly how he wants to. The God who will build up and tear down mountains as child's play. That's who we're defying every time we sin. Every time we justify sharing a word of gossip or acting in a selfish manner. Pick your list of sins. I'm not going to list them all. Every sin we commit or even think is literal defiance against this God. He makes the nations tremble and he scatters the mountains. Judah is going to find out how powerful God is when they are helpless but to be taken into captivity. The Babylonians are going to realize how strong God is, maybe not in those terms, but they're going to witness it. When after many years of their growth and conquering, after many years of their empire, God's going to raise someone else up to take them out and they will be no more. Judah was defying God, the Babylonians were defying God. I'm sorry to say that we too, all too often, defy God. Oh, that we would be sensitive to our sin, that we would be aware of how easily we sin so that we might not defy him as much. Habakkuk's request in verse 2 was answered with a theophany. His request was in wrath, remember mercy. 
And we said, uh, what you're going to do, bring it about, so we talked about last week, what you're going to do to purify the nation of Judah, bring it about, but in your anger, in your wrath, in your righteous judgment against us, remember mercy, be merciful. And God answers that with a show of his power. Verse 6 ends with, His were the everlasting ways. What Habakkuk wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what he wrote uh, describing these everlasting hills that are scattered or these everlasting valleys, those aren't actually everlasting, are they? To us they are, because we can't do anything about them. But God, His ways Those are the everlasting ways. God's response is not confined to man's logic. God's immediate answer to Habakkuk was not, oh, don't worry, I'm going to save myself a remnant. He is going to do that. Oh, don't worry, they're all going to come back into the land. Eventually, he is going to do that. It hasn't happened yet, but he's going to do that, bring all of the nation of Israel to the land. That's not his response. His response to Habakkuk's request is to remind Habakkuk of his eternal power and glory. Habakkuk is the faithful prophet who genuinely wants to see God act. He wants to see God at work in his people to bring, uh, to, on behalf of his own glory, bring about Judah to the point of, the, of repentance and obedience. But instead, God reminds him of his power to rescue as well as his power to destroy. How often do we ask for rescue from some problem and and God actually responds the same way to us, not rescuing us from the situation, but revealing to us more of himself. I think he does this actually quite a bit. Because each one of us, if we were to go around and and ask, have you prayed for, uh, for healing for someone or have you prayed for Uh, for some certain situation in someone's life, and God didn't seem to answer that request. The pain continued. The despair went on. Instead of removing our trouble, oftentimes he reminds us of who he is. He gives us a better view of himself so that we can endure. Don't get me wrong. Keep praying for those problems. God sometimes just takes them away. And it's fantastic and amazing when you see that happen. But sometimes, instead of removing our problems, he adds more of himself to us. Now, don't take that phrase too far. What he does is he helps us understand God better. The greatest problem mankind faces has nothing to do with with our health, or with war or natural disaster. Our greatest problem is sin. It's that broken relationship we have with our Creator. And God's solution to our sin was not to sweep it under the rug, but rather to reveal more of Himself. And He did that through Jesus Christ. Jesus told His followers, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. God wants you to be faithful to him and he will reveal his greatness to you. 
what would happen to us if instead of only praying for rescue from our problems, we would add to our prayers a desire to know God better? Since we see that this is one way that he does respond, what would happen if instead of just praying for healing, that we would pray that, Lord, remove this burden from me, but show me you, show me yourself. We know God is infinitely great. We also know that we are finite in our understanding. So is there always more of God for us to understand? Always. Always. What if this trial that you are going through is exactly what God wants to use to grow your understanding of him? If your response to that is, eh, I'd rather just be rid of the pain. And my friend, you have way too small a view of God. Because he answers our prayers and he answers perfectly every time. You might say, Lord, I have this conflict at work. Please help me work through this issue with my boss. But more than that, help me to know you better. Help me to see your glory in this trial. Or maybe you're looking at yourself. Dear Lord, I'm at war within myself. I have a desire to do what's right, but I keep sinning. I keep being tempted to, to sin. That allure and pull of sin is so strong. Please rescue me from my sin. But more than that, God, show me your glory that I might lose my taste for sin. Have you ever prayed that way? What's your prayer? What are you seeking God to change in your life? How might you alter your request knowing that God might be using this to reveal more of himself and show himself great in our lives? Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, your thoughts are certainly not our thoughts. And your ways are not our ways. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so your ways are greater than mine. Your thoughts are greater than mine. Lord, you have desired, you have designed us with a desire to have things right. To live a life free of pain and struggle. You've designed this, you've designed us with that desire to have a utopia, to have a, no conflict, to have no struggles, to have freedom from sin. You've given us these desires, but until we see our Savior face to face, we're going to have these struggles. These desires will go unfilled. Lord, like Habakkuk, we know your power. We know that you could remove our pain we know that you could immediately fill our bank accounts, that you could remove all sorrow and struggle from our lives. You could create peace. We know you can. But Lord, help us to seek you more than we seek removal from our struggles. Help us to love you more than we love our comfort. Show us your glory.
satisfy our longings with yourself. Convince us that our pain with you is infinitely better than comfort without you. Help us to be like Habakkuk who remained faithful, who despite the struggles he went through and knowing that the answer wouldn't come in his lifetime, the relief wouldn't come in his lifetime, he remained humble and surrendered to his God. Help us to surrender to you, to live for you. Be glorified in us today. In your son's precious name we pray, amen.